Hello, and welcome to PW Kids Cast, the children's book podcast from Publishers Weekly. In each episode, we speak with authors and illustrators creating books for children and teens. I'm John Sellers, the children's reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. Today, I'm speaking with Eric Lindstrom, who's making his debut this year with the young adult novel, Not If I See You First. It's being published in December by Little Brown, which is sponsoring this podcast. Not If I See You First is the story of high school junior Parker Grant, who's been orphaned by the recent and unexpected death of her father. Parker is also blind. She lost her sight in a car accident, the same one that claimed the life of her mother. When a boy from Parker's past returns to her life, it challenges one of several rules she's established for herself, namely that she's not in the business of giving second chances. Betrayal is unforgivable, as she puts it. Eric, thanks for speaking with me, and congratulations on the book. Thank you very much. I'm very glad to be here. Yeah, so how does it uh, feel to have that pub date creeping uh, ever closer? Uh, It feels great, but I got to tell you, this stuff happens really slowly. It feels like I wrote her story years ago, because I did. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, it seems like you've had a a somewhat varied uh, career path, including uh, work in the video game world, as I understand it, as well as teaching. Um, How and when did uh, writing first come into the picture? Well, as long as I could remember. um, Writing was actually my first love, but somehow at a very early age, I had this understanding that it was a difficult career path. So I had always intended to have writing be part-time, and I would have various day jobs that change depending on if you're asking the five-year-old Eric or the 14-year-old Eric, etc. So I think I started my short story writing when I was in the first grade. Um, I think I started my first novel when I was 12. It took a while before I was actually writing for submission, but uh, I was doing that in my late teens. So this is the first time I've actually felt like I got it right and wrote a novel and had it published. But I've actually been writing pretty much my whole life. Hmm. And have there been other novels, uh, I guess, in more recent years in addition to this one that you'd sort of worked out pretty fully but then decided to sort of set aside in favor of maybe this one? Well, I actually wrote my first novel when I was in my early 20s. And uh, it was an adult science fiction novel really for the purpose of learning how to write a novel. I really didn't intend on on publishing it. It was just to see what it was like. Can I make a beginning and a middle and an end and characters and conflict and resolution and and all that? That's in the drawer. No one's ever going to see that. But uh, over the years, I had some false starts. And then I finished a middle grade fantasy novel and uh, shopped that around. Got a lot of praise, but no, no deals and then I sat down to write my next solid novel, and that was what turned out to be Not If I See You First. And uh, you know, I, I've spoken to a few other uh, writers here and there who have, who have worked in the video game uh, industry. Were you involved in a, a storytelling capacity there? Yes, actually. Um, my first job in the uh, industry formally was as a writer. Uh, I was writing user manuals and marketing copy, advertising copy, and whatnot. Um, over time, I started reaching out, trying to get more responsibility, and I got further into the games themselves. So the first game I ever worked on was actually retrofitting story and dialogue into a, uh, um, a science fiction real-time simulator. Then my second game that I worked on was doing the story design puzzle framework for a Sherlock Holmes mystery. And then I started becoming a full-time game designer, but I really did a combination of the story and context direction. It's, it's kind of hard because video games have different terminology, but a lot of it was very much related to the storytelling and the narrative around the game design 
while at the same time I, I did all the traditional hardcore designing of the game itself. Mm. Do you feel like any of that has uh, helped uh, serve your, your fiction writing uh, as far as novels go? Oh, definitely. Um, and, and all the writing I do. But at the same time, it also eased the pressure. Like later in my career, I actually spent uh, many years working uh, on Lara Croft in the Tomb Raider series. Uh, I did the story and co-writing editing on the seventh game in that franchise. And then I went on to direct the full game in the eighth game and also write all the script and whatnot. And over those years, I was getting my writing itch scratched by doing all the narrative and writing uh, for the Tomb Raider games. So that was a period where I, I did not do a lot of personal writing. But as soon as that ended, I jumped back in. And not only could I devote a lot of my time to that writing, but I had continued to learn as a writer, essentially putting in my 10,000 hours. It just wasn't all in novel writing. It was all kinds of different fiction writing. And so uh, to get back to this book, what were the origins of uh, what would eventually become uh, Not If I See You First? How did it sort of begin to come together? Well, one of the things that I think prevented the novel I'd written before from landing a deal was it didn't have a strong voice. And that was because uh, up until that point, I had been a very plot-focused writer. And I decided to sit down and write a novel that was character-driven and the plot would come second. So sitting down, thinking about what I wanted for a character, and I wanted to write YA. That's, that's what I read. I, I started reading YA with my kids, and I never stopped. And that's where I felt comfortable. And in terms of writing what you know, I felt, I know this. So I was going to write a YA novel, trying to figure out what that context is. I always start with a conflict. What's going to be the problem in the conflict? And from a character standpoint, I was interested in this idea of the difficulty it is at that age in particular to connect with other people in terms of vulnerability and trust and even something as simple as sitting at a cafeteria table with people that you don't know, let alone sharing information with someone, hopefully becoming a better friend or romantic relationship, et cetera, and how difficult and and scary that was. And then I think, okay, well, how do I make that a problem as bad as I possibly can make it? And in thinking about it, I realized how much of that interplay between people when you're feeling somebody out for a deeper relationship, whether it's platonic or romantic, depends so much on eye contact and reading someone's facial expression and their body language. And I realized how much harder it would be if you couldn't see any of that. And the story went somewhere different as I wrote it, but that's where it began. This idea of writing about a girl who struggles with interpersonal relationships because she's unable to see any of the cues that the rest of us take for granted. Uh, so, Eric, did you have any uh, pre-existing experience or personal experience with uh, people whose sight is impaired like Parker's? I've known a number of people that fall on various uh, places on the ability to see spectrum. Uh, I've never met anybody who is completely lights out the way Parker Grant is. It's, it's actually very rare to have no ability to see light whatsoever. But I have uh, had friends and family that have had various degrees of uh, ability to see. You know, as a sighted person, were you? Did you feel a pressure to, uh, you know, get her her story right or get her experience, quote unquote, right? Um, I felt a lot of pressure because 
not only did I want it to be uh, authentic feeling, but I did not want to tread on an area that I didn't have direct experience in and, and misstep. But at the same time, it was also a, an area where I didn't do a lot of initial research because one of the things that was a part of Parker's personality was her insistence that so much of the way to interact with people that can't see is common sense. I wanted to explore my own common sense and see whether or not there was some validity to what the character was saying in terms of, well, there's things that you can't know, but there's things that you would know if you just thought about it for half a second. And that her, her position is that people just don't think about it for half a second. So I actually spent some time thinking it through what made sense and kind of established the world from that point of view. Then I went out to do some research both a combination of, of looking into um, being blind generally, but also reading blogs where people with various abilities would complain about their treatment or their accommodation or lack thereof, et cetera. And was very glad to see that a lot of what I had mapped out from my own common sense translated pretty directly to what a lot of, a lot of the bloggers were saying. So I used further research to flesh out the details and then went from there. So Parker has, you know, an established set of rules for navigating life. I mentioned a little bit earlier, um, you know, in some ways these rules are as much for other people as they are uh, for her. Uh, can you talk about how some of those came together? Well, in terms of Parker's rules, she thinks of these rules as the way people are supposed to behave around her uh, and anyone with her, um, her similar sight abilities. But metaphorically in the, in the story, those turn on her at various stages in the book. But those rules came naturally out of my thinking about what it means to interact and then later some research into those, uh, into those modes of communication. And a lot of those rules just came directly out of the common sense. Uh, some of them came out of the, the blogs where you know, I, I wouldn't have imagined some of the problems that uh, blind people face routinely and, and consistently. And some of those uh, ended up in the rules. But I didn't write the rules for the story. I wrote the rules for my notes. And then I saw just how obvious it would be for her to have written those rules down and you know, printed them out and distributed them. <laughs> and that's how mm-hmm. they, they worked their way into the story. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not often in the habit of asking authors about their websites, but I did happen to notice that, that yours includes a couple tools that let visitors adjust the contrast and the font size. I assume that obviously relates directly to uh, the book. Yes, it does, actually. Um, I had started the whole process of coming up with my website, and somewhere in the middle, I was looking at the Disability and Kidlet website and saw they had those same, those same handles. And I thought, that's brilliant. That's exactly what I need on my website. And uh, it took a little work to get it to, to function within uh, the format we were using, but uh, I'm very happy with how it turned out. Are there any other ways that uh, you or Little Brown are trying to make the book uh, as accessible as possible to readers who might have uh, visual impairments? I actually spoke to um, the literary chair at the National Braille Association throughout the process and a lot of it to make sure that I was on the right track with respect to the, the Braille literally and whatnot. When it comes to Braille books in the United States, it's still very uh, ad hoc. Uh, Google Braille books 
um, and you'll find that the few stores that actually carry Braille books for, for purchase do it themselves. And the, the books themselves are so big and they're so expensive that it's, it's actually quite a problem to find Braille books uh, that, are, that are bound. Luckily, as we continue into the, the digital age with text-to-speech and whatnot, there's ways for people that can't see at all to access the content that they need without having to track down these Braille books. And that's, uh, that's great, but uh, it continues to be a challenge for people who want to actually read tactilely to find novels. They can find classics and whatnot, but mm. uh, it, it's difficult to find books that are, that are current. You mentioned also you know, reading YA with your, your kids and sort of, sort of realizing that this is what I wanted to write. Were there certain titles that, as a family, you guys really kind of came to love or that for you were really markers of like, oh, this is, this is definitely what I want to do? Well, it's funny. Gr- growing up, YA wasn't what it is today. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I, when I was a kid, I was reading, you know, B-grade science fiction novels for adults that, you know, now reading them, they, they kind of seem like they're written for a young audience, but uh, they weren't at the time. And then as I was uh, raising my kids, when they were little, it, it was, you know, Goodnight Moon and, and, and Dr. Seuss. But as they grew up, uh, it became Junie B. Jones, who I loved. I still read all of Junie B. Jones books. My wife makes me read those books to her when she's sick. Mm-hmm. Then uh, as the kids got even older, we, we were reading Harry Potter as it came out, waiting for the next one, reading it. We would read it aloud together. Uh, I think we're about book four or five when they were old enough that they wanted their own copy and scrolled away into their rooms to read much faster than I was reading aloud. <laughs> and then uh, as they became uh, teenagers, uh, I found myself reading a lot of whatever they were reading. Um, one book that stands out in my memory was uh, Ella Enchanted, um, Gail Carson Levine. I loved that book. I loved how it was about all the things that I wanted those books to be about, but at the same time, it was very smoothly and, and elegantly written. And since then, I've been generally trying to keep up, but I actually like designing games more than I play them. And I do a lot of things on the design side. I design puzzles more than I do puzzles. I love to read, but I love to write more. So a lot of my spare time, if I'm thinking, oh, am I going to read or am I going to write? I choose to write. So I actually am woefully underread when it comes to a lot of the books that everyone should be reading. And I do my best to, uh, to, to read when I can. But I, at the same time, it's hard when I really want to be creating mm-hmm. as opposed to consuming. And, you know, since this was your first book, um, what was the, I guess, the first experience of the editorial process, you know, once the book finally did uh, uh, get acquired by Little Brown? It was great. Um, the, uh, the book sold at auction, so the people that uh, were bidding on it were kind of already there with respect to liking what the, uh, the manuscript had. So the editorial process after that was fairly light, I thought. I'm in the middle of um, my second book with Little Brown, and uh, the editorial process is much deeper because they came in much earlier in the process. And I'm finding the experience uh, very similar, just, just deeper. And I've had so many years in the video game design business and, and writing for clients that the process of having somebody criticize and try to improve whatever it is I'm writing, I'm very familiar with that. So even in the context of 
a story that's my story and a manuscript that's my manuscript, I'm not writing in a closet to amuse myself. I want people to enjoy this stuff. It's, it's, you know, you don't make a game to play it yourself. You want other people to love it. So this whole process of talking with really intelligent editors and having them challenge the assumptions I've made and the presentations I've made, every single draft, no matter how much work or struggle it's been, I've always loved what I've ended up with better than the draft before. It's a great process. And you mentioned uh, already working on your next book. I know this one isn't out just yet, but um, what's next? Is there anything you can talk about book-wise? Well, I think the only reason I could say that I'm in the middle of my second book is that it was actually made public that when Not If I See You first sold, it was a two-book deal. Mm -hmm. Aside from that, I don't think I'm supposed to say anything. Okay. But do you see yourself uh, sticking with YA at least for the time being? Yes, yes. My second book is YA, and uh, I love this space. And in terms of the write what you know, I feel like I know this space better than any other space. That I am an adult, but I think and talk in ways that, I mean, I've, I've been asked many times about Not If I See You First. How did you get into the mindset to be able to think and talk like these teenage girls? And I don't know how to answer that question because I'm not trying to think and talk like teenage girls it's just these are just people and yeah they have they have concerns that that adults don't have like trigonometry class and whatnot but really the emotional landscape that is is being explored in terms of loss and fear and joy those aren't YA topics a lot of what makes a book a YA book is that it's quickly accessible. It's fun. It's not just trying to be literary with, you know, excellent writing that that feels more like taking medicine than enjoying a a great meal. So, yes, uh, my second book is YA. I I have a hard time imagining not writing YA Mm -hmm. um, because I love it so much. That's what I read in uh, my free time. And, uh, And the world needs more of these books. Well, congratulations again on this one, and uh, best of luck with uh, the ones to come. Thank you very much. Pleasure talking to you. Once again, I've been speaking with Eric Lindstrom, whose first novel is Not If I See You First, out in December from Little Brown. Thank you for listening to PW Kids Cast. 